Okay, welcome back to our study that we're doing on the theme of biblical womanhood. And um, we're doing a, a short series. This is the fifth out of a planned six studies we're doing together on this theme. And it's not the ideal way to do a teaching series. I was looking back at uh, what we've done before and um, just because of scheduling issues, uh, the last study we did was six months ago, and the first study we did was a year and a half ago. So um, for the sake of, as a, from a teacher's perspective, for the sake of continuity and comprehension of what I'm developing, uh, I know I'm putting uh, quite a bit of strain on you to keep track of what we've covered so far. So please bear with me as I'm going to briefly review what we've covered so far, and then we will head into uh, our main focus for today's study. So what we're doing is we're looking at uh, woman as a, as a um, in a sense, a, a project that the Lord has had in his heart and mind from before the foundation of the world. You're included in that project, but the project isn't just about you individually and personally, but of course uh, certainly applies in a very significant way to you. So what we've looked at is under these headings, one of which we, we developed in two parts. So a total of six studies, but five parts. What we've looked at is... Um, a woman defined by God, designed by God, uh, fallen from that original design and definition, then today's study is going to be focused on um, the redemption of what the fall ruined, and then our final study for next time, whenever it is that we're able to meet together again, uh, is we're going to look at woman glorified and how your existence as a woman in eternity uh, is going to be somewhat different than your existence as a woman now in history. So in looking at a woman defined, what we the essence of that study, if I were to boil it down to a single sentence, is that uh, a woman, just like man, was created by God. And because you were created by God, uh, he has exclusive definition rights for you, meaning a woman is who God says a woman is and only what God says a woman is. Uh, We live in a time, a society, a culture, a mindset that our culture has established that uh, makes the definition of woman completely flexible and constantly shifting and changing. Just in the course of my life, now I've lived a a long time, I'm getting close to 70 years now in this world. Um, In that 70 years, this is is radically changed just in the course of my lifespan. But uh, the idea that we're focused on and what scripture reveals to us is that the definition of woman from God's perspective has never changed, has never shifted, Uh, He had something in his heart and mind before he even spoke the very first creative word, which was light uh, at the beginning of of the original week of creation in Genesis 1. Before he even spoke that first creative word, he had 
a definition in heart and mind about what he was going to create when he created the woman. And that definition remains constant, and it remains true, and it remains uh, uppermost in importance for your understanding of who you actually are from God's perspective. <clears throat> now, the second, the second focal point, which is woman designed, and we, as I said, we broke this into two studies, is we ended up looking at design in the sense of a blueprint, design in the sense of a, of a plan that, that then carries out the definition in real-world circumstances. And we identified four key focal points of that design, and the four focal points we broke into two subcategories. One had to do with your relationship to God, which is the, the singular most important relationship you will ever experience in all of your life here in this world and all of your life in eternity to come. And in that relationship to God, uh, God identifies two key things about your design. And one is you were designed to bear God's image. The man, of course, is designed to bear God's image as well. But what we saw is that the woman bears God's image in a slightly different way than the man does and highlights and reveals, reflects, or displays in this world and in your life aspects of God's nature and character in, in a way that men cannot or do not. And so there's a purpose in which God divided human beings into male and female in order to reflect different aspects of his nature and character. So we looked at your design to bear his image. And then the secondary part, which flows from that, is his purpose for you in this world is reflected in the design of you being designed to be a dominion taker in this world. There are, there are aspects of your having charge by God's intention and design over God's creation and over God's world, but in his name, representing him, you learning how to take charge of aspects of life on, uh, in, the, in the sense of fulfilling God's purpose for your life um, having to do with your design. You're designed for that. Uh, the second aspect of the design that we focused on, did an entire study on this one, was that you are also in a secondary relationship, secondary only to your relationship to the Lord, and that is your relationship to your husband. And I understand that not every woman here is currently married, uh, but we're looking at, again, not just this from the standpoint of your life experience, but from the standpoint of God's design for woman from the very beginning all the way through history. And so uh, in relationship to a husband, the woman is designed first and foremost to be a companion to her husband, meaning this is a relationship Secondary, as I said, only to your relationship to the Lord, but a relationship in which you were designed to enter into relationship with one human male, a committed lifelong relationship, and to affect that relationship as a companion in a way that then serves God's purpose and reflects God's design to the world around you. And then as part of that relationship, the calling that is upon your life is to be a helper to your husband. Helper is not in the sense of, of some kind of secondary in importance to the relationship, but in the sense that God uses that same term to describe, for instance, 
the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. Certainly, if we were to consider our relationship to the Holy Spirit and see him as a helper, we wouldn't see him as some kind of secondary importance kind of person in the relationship. We would recognize um, the priority of him being able to provide help for us that no one else can provide. And in that sense, you are called in relationship to your husband to be a helper to him, meaning you are equipped and gifted and called and designed to be a unique helper to your husband, a helper greater than anyone else in his life can possibly. You can help him in a way that no one else in his life can possibly help him, other than, of course, the Lord himself. Then in our last study, we looked at a woman fallen and how sin entered the world and affected all that I've previously described. And of course, we, we, did, we did spend a few minutes looking at how the fall affects both men and women equally. And uh, there is no sense in which um, sin affects women more than men or men more than women. We're both equally affected by it. Uh, but there, is, there are unique aspects in which the fall um, has corrupted God's design, both for men and unique aspects that, in which the fall has corrupted God's design for women. And uh, we ended up focusing on the biblical uh, emphasis that we find, in, especially in the New Testament, but it's, it's displayed throughout the Old Testament as well. And these two categories specifically, one having to do with the woman being more susceptible to deception than the man. Generally speaking, there are exceptions to this in terms of individuals, but overall, there is a greater susceptibility to deception, which then primarily affects your relationship to God. And then the second, in which the Lord identified there would be a new and unhealthy contrary desire in the woman's heart to take charge and to take control of the relationship with her husband. And of course, that would ultimately then affect the second most important relationship in her life, which is the relationship to the husband. All right, so that brings us up then to where we're going to be focused today, and that is the biblical woman redeemed. So if the fall has almost completely, and I say almost, but almost completely ruined God's original definition and design for you, um, what has the Lord done in what we call redemption and salvation to uh, restore that. So uh, I'm not going to make a case about the fact that in Christ you have been redeemed, in Christ you have been saved. I, I'm just taking this as a starting point that you already understand that, you uh, have experienced that, you have some really solid foundational knowledge about that. I'm going to take that as our starting point and, and go a little further with this this morning. So there are two experiences that are part of our two subcategories to the understanding of what it means to be redeemed from the fall as a woman. And those two experiences affect every believer, male and female, but I'm just going to be focused on the, the womanly aspects of this primarily this morning. So the two uh, aspects or, or categories or parts, you could say, of our experience of redemption are 
these two theological terms, regeneration and sanctification. So there's, there's a uh, link between the two. There's an overlap between the two. One leads immediately to the other, and one must logically and therefore spiritually did precede the other, but they're, they're forever linked, and both are essential to your walk in the Lord. Uh, let me try to distinguish between the two of them. Regeneration is, of course, it's a, it's a term that just simply means new life. It's the idea of what previously, prior to the experience of regeneration, had either less life than it should or no life whatsoever. And in the context of how deeply the fall really affected each one of us, we can rightly describe it as the second of those two options. We're talking about the introduction of life into someone that previously had no life whatsoever. So, of course, we're not talking about natural life. We're not talking about physical life. Every single one of us being born into this world and up until the moment we were born again fully experienced natural physical life in this world. But that life between the day of your natural birth and the day of your spiritual rebirth, all of that time period, it's a different amount of time for each one of us, but all of that time period was a life lived in this world without any spiritual life. So your entire life was distinguished only by your natural physical life, none at all of any evidence or any presence or any activity in you and through you of true spiritual life as God defines it and describes it for us. Regeneration is distinguished from sanctification by being momentary. It If you belong to the Lord this morning, if you know the Lord, if you have been regenerated, it happened to you. It's not still happening to you. It happened to you at one singular moment of your life experience. For me, it was in February of 1979. I had lived 24 years in this world as a natural, physically alive person, but a spiritually entirely dead person. And the Lord injected new life into my soul, and I became, as a result, a different person than I was before. I was dead, now I'm alive. I was lost, now I'm saved. I was completely different, but it was a momentary experience. Um, I think I've told this story once before, but um, you may not remember it, or I may, <coughs> I may not have told it. <clears throat> I was fairly young in the Lord, and I was part of a, a small church uh, up in Topanga Canyon, actually. And uh, there was a young man in the congregation that um, had recently been led to the Lord through some uh, outreach evangelism, and he was part of our Sunday services and um, I, the uh, pastor of the church was a good brother in the Lord, uh, dear brother. He's with the Lord now. Uh, he was gifted more as an evangelist than he was as a pastor. And so because he was gifted more as an evangelist than as a pastor, every Sunday morning, his message was essentially a 
gospel proclamation. Now, there's nothing wrong with a gospel proclamation, but um, he had no real interest in and no real ability to teach the word in an expositional way uh, in a discipleship kind of sense. So every Sunday morning, he would just preach the gospel. And this young, this young man that had recently come to know the Lord, every Sunday responded to this gospel message because the pastor every Sunday did what, and it was a very traditional kind of church situation, he did what we traditionally refer to as give an altar call. Now, I, I don't know if some of you who have been raised in this church may not be familiar with an altar call, but um, in traditional churches that do this, altar calls are after gospel proclamation. There's kind of a, a moment where the pastor asks everybody uh, to, to bow their heads and close their eyes, and then he, he invites people to respond to the gospel. And then um, in... The case of this kind of church, they're invited not just to to raise their hands and to accept the Lord, but to come forward to the altar or the the front part of the church and to be prayed for by the pastor and and accept the Lord. So it was a small church, but every Sunday morning the pastor gave a gospel message. Every Sunday morning he gave an altar call. And every Sunday morning this young man came up, responded, came up to get prayed for to be saved. So in essence, because he hadn't been taught and the pastor never sat him down and explained to him, you don't need to keep doing this every Sunday morning. Um, If you have responded and if there's a true salvation experience that's happened to you, um, you can sit down and, and pray for the others that may need to respond in this way. But he was getting, in his own perspective, he was getting saved over and over and over and over again. And that was just, a lot, as I said, a lack of understanding. But regeneration doesn't work like that. Regeneration is a one-time event, and it happens once and once only in the life of a true believer. So it is critically important for you to be able to identify, number one, whether or not you have ever truly been regenerated, and if you have, to identify, if not pinpointing the exact date on the calendar, like I always refer to my salvation experiences. February of 1979, I can't tell you which day in February it was. I, I, I didn't bother to note on the calendar at the time. I mean, my life was being changed. I was more concerned about the experience I was having of coming to know the Lord than I was uh, marking it for future reference. But you should be able to identify, this is when my life changed. So it's momentary regeneration, but it's life lasting as an experience. If you've truly been regenerated, your life changed and it life, your life changed forever from that point. It can never be the same as it was before. Now also, and I'm here referring to very traditional Christian understanding of these issues, there's, a, there's an old saying and it comes from an Old Testament description And there's a reason why it's described in the Old Testament, but is never described in the New Testament in quite the same way. And the the term used is uh, experiencing what's called backsliding. How many of you have heard of someone backsliding? Backsliding is essentially the idea of, I came to know the Lord, but then at some future point, I kind of slid back to how I was before I ever came to know the Lord. 
A truly regenerated person never slides back to what they were before they came to know the Lord. It's not possible. Why? Because a new life has entered into your heart, into your soul, and it cannot allow you, will not allow you, does not allow you to ever live exactly as you lived before. Now, does this mean you can't sin after you regenerate it? No, it doesn't mean that. Of course, you can sin. And there's a reason why there are these two elements that we're focused on in redemption, which is both regeneration and sanctification. Sanctification has more to do with the maintaining of the change that's happened in regeneration. And not just maintaining it, but increasing the change and continuing to grow in that change. But what I want you to get is this, first and foremost. You were regenerated if you've ever truly come to know the Lord. That means God injected new life into the core of who you are. How did that change you? Not just as a person, but as a woman. How it changed you is you became, in a single moment's time, a different woman at the essential level than you were before you were, regener- you were regenerated. So we, uh, we use the term, and it's the term that the Lord Jesus provided for us from John chapter 3 about being born again, the beginning of a new life. And there are so many passages that speak to this, but I just want to focus your attention on one of them this morning. And this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's one of the most well-known ones, of course, and rightly so. <clears throat> I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. But I want to focus your attention on it in relationship to who you are as a woman this morning. Second Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and the only reason Paul has to say those words is, He wants to make sure that we don't misunderstand. This isn't just about someone deciding to turn over a new leaf in life. Even unbelievers can turn over new leaves in life. I I can think of at least a half a dozen times before I ever knew the Lord where I turned over a new leaf in life and I decided I'm going to change some stuff about my life. I'm going to make my life better. I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to start doing this instead. And my life actually did improve when I made good decisions as far as I was able to understand them and conceptualize them, when I made good decisions for my, my natural physical life in this world. This isn't what we're talking about here. This is, if anyone is in Christ, meaning what he's about to describe is centered in Christ located exclusively and only in him and can only be experienced in this regenerated relationship that I've been describing with him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this key phrase, as it's translated in our ESV version here, he is a new creation. Now, I like the ESV as a translation. It's an excellent translation. It's one of the best that's ever yet been produced. But it's not a perfect translation. I will say this. The original texts are perfect, but the translations are, to one degree or another, imperfect. There's an element of that in the phrasing of this second part of verse 17. 
As Paul was writing this, he did not write this phrase, he is a new creation. This is what he literally wrote. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and there's kind of a pause in the text, a new creation. That's it. There's no he is in the text. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation. It's kind of like stop and observe that everything has changed. If you were formally, previously not in Christ to now being introduced into Christ, when you're introduced into Christ, you're introduced to an entirely new creation. Now, how, how broad of a category is creation? I want you to think about that. There's only one in existence that's excluded from creation, and that is God the creator. <coughs> Everything else that exists or ever has existed or ever will exist is part of God's creation. And when he says, if anyone is in Christ, it's like, it's like stop and behold, you're now part of a new creation. How, and, and the only question then to resolve is, how new is that? Well, in the Greek text, in the Greek language, there are different words for new. We only have one. We have the word new, and it, and it, it can be applied depending upon the context in terms of what you're describing. So there's, there's a new in time, and there's new in kind or quality. So new in time, like it's a new day. It doesn't mean that today is a much better day automatically than yesterday was. Maybe your yesterday would be a much better day than your today is going to be. So new in time doesn't imply everything's better. It just implies it's different because time is past and therefore it's new. But new in kind or new in quality is the word that Paul uses here. New creation. It's an entirely new creation because it's untainted by everything that happened to the old one that caused it to fall into disrepair and ruin because of the sin that Adam and the sin that Eve's, Eve committed. So a new creation is now the essential definition of the change that God has accomplished in your life. And what I want you to consider is how that affects you as a woman. So you were, prior to your regeneration, a woman in the creation, but an old creation that was fallen and ruined by the effects of sin. Now you're regenerated and removed from one creation, not physically removed, but spiritually removed from one creation and placed in a new creation that is pristine and unaffected by the fall in the same way that the original creation was. Now, he goes on to say this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old what? 
the old creation. Now, we're not talking about physically. We live in an interesting in-between experience. And that is, we live in an old physical creation. Now, when the Lord returns, even that old physical creation is going to be transformed. The Bible uses different kinds of terms to describe it. Peter describes it in more of a, what we would call a scientific way, saying even the, the elements, the essential atomic level elements of the old creation are going to be burned up and God is going to recreate, make a new creation in his place. But the idea here is the old creation from a spiritual standpoint has passed away as far as you are concerned because you have been removed from that creation and placed into a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the idea is if you are removed from one and placed in the other, then the old in you has passed away and the new in you has come to replace it. So at the moment you were truly regenerated, the old woman passed away and the new woman replaced the old completely and entirely. An entirely new beginning. And that's why Jesus uses such radical descriptions as being born again, as if your life got a new and amazing restart point from the moment that you were truly regenerated. So the old fallen woman, all of who she was, what she was like, all of her characteristics has passed away. And the new redeemed woman has come and has replaced her. So the day you were born again, you became a new woman. How much? 50% new? 100% a new woman. Now, the issue here, and we have to ask, stop and ask the question, does that mean, therefore, that from the moment of your regeneration, no further change was necessary for you? And the answer to that is as strong of a no. There is further change that's needed and required because even though you were made entirely new, you still live in an entirely old world that surrounds you. So it's kind of like this. It's kind of like we live in a corrupted world, but we live in a spiritual bubble that surrounds us that, in a sense, filters and protects us from the contaminating elements of the culture, the fallen world, the society that surrounds us. So what is that further change that's necessary? We call it, using the second theological term that I identified earlier, sanctification. Now, earlier I emphasized that regeneration is momentary, but life-lasting in its impact. Sanctification, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. Sanctification is never momentary. You experience sanctification at specific moments in your life, but sanctification, rightly identified and defined, is ongoing, but is also equally life-lasting in its impact on you. So regeneration is momentary and life-lasting, and sanctification is 
ongoing and life-lasting. Now, what is the relationship between the two? Regeneration has to come first. You cannot be at all sanctified until and unless you are first regenerated. But once you are truly regenerated, it is inevitable and even in your worst moments as a regenerated person, unavoidable for you to be sanctified. Meaning God enters in to a committed process in your life to continue to change you along the lines of the great change that he began in you in the momentary first experience of regeneration. Let's uh, look at a passage that describes the implications of sanctification in the book of Romans chapter 6. I'm going to look just at a a single verse. And there's a whole context leading up to this verse and flowing out of this verse as as Paul's point continues. But I just want to focus on what he says in verse 4 of Romans 6. He's talking about our relationship with Christ. He's talking about our being united with Christ in what Christ accomplished for us on the cross in in his death. And he says this in verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, earlier I was mentioning that as good as the ESV is, it could, it could use some tweaking in certain details. And this is, there's another detail in this verse where it could use a little tweaking. <clears throat> and it's centered on this last phrase. We too might walk in newness of life. And I want you to, if you're one that marks in your Bible or if you're one that take notes, um, take note of the word might. What does that imply? This wonderful thing has happened to Christ. This wonderful experience has been accomplished by him. And then we're in some mysterious way, we're united with him in what he has experienced. And it has an effect and an application on us. And the result is we too might walk in newness of life. It kind of implies the possibility that we might walk in newness of life. But who knows? The word might isn't in the original text. I don't know why the translators added it. I would like, you know, the opportunity to sit down with one of them and say, why did you add the word might here? It's not in the text. And it actually leads to a potential misunderstanding. The the potential misunderstanding is you can be born again and, and never be sanctified. And there are some that actually believe that about Christians. You can be truly saved and never change from the day of your salvation forward. That is not a biblical perspective. It's not a biblical idea. It's not taught anywhere in God's word. If you're truly regenerated, you will change. You can't help it. I mean, I'm going to talk in just a moment about how you should help it, but the idea is you can't help it, meaning God regenerated you. He did this to you, 
and God is committed to those who are truly regenerated to carrying forward the big change that he started with in your regeneration by ensuring that you will continue to change. Now, are there degrees of how much you will change after you're regenerated as we compare various believers around the world? Yes. Some will change a lot. Some will change somewhat less. But everyone that's truly regenerated will experience sanctification and will continue to change. If you don't continue to change, the likelihood is you never actually were changed to begin with. That's this consideration of another study, so I don't want to veer too far off into that. But I'll say it this way. The implication of Romans 6, and this is implied even without the word might being in the text. Regeneration is involuntary. You didn't choose to be regenerated. In fact, if you had been given a choice by the Lord at that key moment in your life, you would have chosen the wrong thing. You would have chosen to just keep going the way that you were going. Because there is one benefit to being unsaved. It's not a great benefit in the long run, but there's one benefit, and that is you were in charge of your life. The moment you were regenerated, that changed forever. You lost control of your life. You're no longer in charge. It's an involuntary change. God came in and changed you whether you wanted to be changed or not. He regenerated you. But sanctification is intended to be voluntary, participatory. It's a continuing change that God wants you to buy into. He wants you to get with the program. And the program is his program, not your program for yourself or how your life should be. He's he's got a very specific idea of how your life should develop from this point forward as a woman of God. And that's what sanctification is all about. And so he describes that here in verse 4 as a walk. So that we too, in this, I'm going to leave out the word might, because it's not in the original text as I said. Let me read the whole verse again from that standpoint. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too walk in newness of life. Paul is stating it as a certainty, but he wants us to get it, to comprehend it, and then to buy into it and to participate fully from our hearts in the ongoing change that the walk describes. And why does he use the imagery of walk to describe this ongoing change? Walking is simply a step-by-step progression toward a destination. That's what you do when you take a walk. You you make a step-by-step progress toward a planned destination. Now, you can walk without a destination in mind, and what happens when you walk without a destination in mind? You don't know where you're going to end up. God has a destination planned for you. The destination is not a physical location. The destination isn't even a spiritual location. Like, we're, we're thinking in terms of heaven, maybe. The destination is not heaven. The destination in this walk is being fully conformed to the image of Christ. But as a woman in this world, what will 
that look like and what steps will take you closer to that destination. So I want to give you three things that the Lord in your sanctification is committed to changing in you. This is true for men as well, but again, I'm just asking you to consider it from the standpoint of your unique assignment and calling to be a woman of God in this world. Three areas of change the Lord has mapped out in your walk that will take you toward your destination. You miss these three areas, you will never reach the destination you're intended to reach. The first, and I'm going to give two words for each one, just so that you, you can kind of get a head start to conceptualize what I'm after here. The first is a change in your perspective, or you could call it your viewpoint. So I'll use a, a familiar passage to describe this, Romans 12. Verse 2. two. Yes, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Remember, this world is simply representative of the old, fallen, corrupted, ruined creation. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Sanctification is first and foremost about changing your mind. Now, there are other things about you that need to be changed besides just your mind. But unless and until your mind is changed, those other things will never change. And the word translated transformed here, you may have heard this before. It's a, it's a good reminder if you haven't. If you haven't, it's important to learn. It's the Greek word metamorphosis which we still use in the English language, but not as commonly as the word transformed. And it's the word that we apply, for instance, to the change that happens when a caterpillar weaves that cocoon around itself in that critical point of its life process. And it emerges from the cocoon sometimes, sometime later, not as a caterpillar with wings glued to its back, but it emerges as a completely different creature, a new creation in a sense, completely transformed to something different than it was before it entered the cocoon. Be metamorphosized by the renewal of your mind. So what does it mean to have your mind renewed? It means your opinions change, your thoughts, your worldview the way you view the entire world around you, the way you view God, the way you view yourself, the way you view what it means to be a woman, the way you view everything is changed. And it's changed, or it's intended to be changed, based upon the perspective that is revealed in God's word versus the perspective that the fallen, ruined creation and world and society and culture around you is constantly trying to force feed back into you. So you have these two contrary perspectives, these two contrary worldviews, and you can only live on, uh, based on one or the other at any given moment in time. And the degree of your sanctification success will depend entirely on which worldview you're buying into. 
Which one, which one do you believe is more true? Which one do you believe is better? You know, and I shouldn't have to argue you out of one and into the other. You should understand the radical difference between the two and from a heart level embrace the one that God wants you to embrace. But I just want to emphasize you'll never fully be sanctified as a woman of God until and unless you embrace this life-transforming mind renewal element that's at the, the foundational level of your sanctification. Thinking differently. Second, what also is changed in you, and this flows from your renewed perspective, is a new disposition, or we could describe it as a new attitude. Let me, uh, let me offer to you from Galatians 5, and this is the portion that we refer to as the fruit of the Spirit. And it follows immediately, I don't have time to read it this morning, it follows immediately, starting in verse 19 of Galatians 5, on a section in which <clears throat> Paul lists out not every possible expression of this, but kind of an overview of what he calls the works of the flesh being evident. All of the ways that living as a fallen, ruined human being in this fallen, ruined world found expression in your life. And then in verse 22, he contrasts all of that by the connector word, but. Contrast. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, he lists just nine things here. I personally don't believe that these are the only nine fruits, so to speak, of the Spirit's work in changing and transforming us. I believe they're representative of the kinds of changes that God produces in us. But what I want you to think about, you may never have thought about this before, um, we're focused on not just a changed perspective, but now a changed disposition or attitude. I want you to think about how many of these things that are identified as fruit of the Spirit are disposition or attitude related. If you don't have a new disposition, you'll never love anyone in this world the way God has called you to love them. If you don't have a new disposition, you will never experience true joy. If you don't have a new disposition, you will never know true peace. If you don't have a new disposition, you'll never be patient when you most need to be patient. You'll never be kind when you're supposed to be kind in God's design and purpose and intention for you. You'll never be truly good in the way that he wants you to represent and reflect and display his goodness in the world around you. You'll never be truly faithful in the relationships that God has appointed for you. You'll never be the gentle woman that God has called you to be. You will never be self-controlled. All of those things really ultimately are disposition or attitude related. And, you know, the world likes to talk about how having a new attitude, and a new attitude is critically important, but again, this is all based upon the prior life 
transforming work of regeneration. And it's now just carrying that forward to the extent that God wants it to be uh, worked out in your life. Okay, the third area that God is after to change in you, and the final area, because this really flows out of the first two, flows out of a new perspective, it flows out of a new disposition, and yet it's critically important to not leave out, and that is new behavior, or a common biblical term to describe that, new conduct. Uh, for this one, let's look at First Peter chapter 3. And I'll read a few verses at the beginning of chapter 3. And this is in a passage where Paul is specifically talking to Christian wives, regenerated wives, born-again wives, new creation wives. And he's, in this passage, he's really addressing sanctification more than regeneration. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some, now some of the husbands, even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. The imagery here is battle imagery, warfare imagery. The idea that you're living... So you're married, but you're living in a world that's at war with the changes that God intends to accomplish in your life, in your marriage, in this most imp- second most important relationship of your life, your relationship with your husband. And sometimes the husband isn't winning the battle, even if you are. But in that case, therefore, you can win the battle for them, so to speak, by this key phrase, the conduct. <clears throat> These husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Here, Peter, just to make a point, is setting in contrast two things that you can do to influence your husband. The two things are you can speak to him, meaning he's messing up, so you speak to him, and if he's messing up, how are you going to tend to speak to him? in a corrective kind of way, right? If he's messing up and you're speaking, you're going to be tending to speak correctively. And that can, in certain circumstances, in certain moments of the relationship, can have a beneficial and a redemptive impact and influence on him. But oftentimes, if you've been in a real-world relationship with a real man, um, you can... You can testify that sometimes even your best intention corrective words may not have a corrective impact or effect on him. Sometimes because men can be somewhat stubborn, um, sometimes it has exactly the opposite effect. And so in that circumstance, understand that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Here, Peter just wants to emphasize how powerful your conduct as a category of sanctified change in your life really is. Here, it's just exclusively being highlighted in the relationship with your husband. But your conduct has a powerful effect on everyone that you will ever relate to in this world. Your husband, your children, your friends, your fellow church members, your unbelieving neighbors, your strangers that you run into as you interact in the world around you. 
conduct. Sanctified conduct. When they see, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, he wants to just doubly emphasize the importance of conduct, but then he adds a couple of modifying words to make sure we are following his point. Respectful conduct versus what? Disrespectful conduct. Pure conduct versus what? Conduct that the world thinks is fine, but in God's perspective is far from fine. Conduct that God, uh, that pleases God and serves God's purpose. And he goes on to give one example in the husband-wife relationship. So I'll just read through the rest of verse 6 to get that example uh, set in our understanding. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. His whole point in saying that is your biggest impact on your husband is not going to be how beautiful you look in his eyes from a physical standpoint. doesn't mean that your husband doesn't appreciate your beauty or won't appreciate it if you, you make efforts to be even more beautiful in his sight. He's not saying that's wasted effort. He's saying that's not the most important aspect of how you will impact him. But, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which now, here he's combining two things. We've covered the first and we're talking about the second. He's talking about the new disposition now affecting the new conduct or behavior. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, very precious in God's sight. He sees this as so valuable. Maybe you haven't seen it as valuable as he sees it. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Cyril obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, you understand, if I were to stand up in some, let's just say some women's meeting in the world, and read this passage and say, this is the truth. You know, what kind of reaction would I get? I'd be, at the very least, booed off the stage, hissed at, possibly the target of Rotten Tomatoes thrown my way, you know, and maybe even worse nowadays. But I will just say to you, because I have confidence that you have a different perspective and a different disposition and ultimately different conduct, This is the truth of what God is after and what God is looking for and where the step-by-step progression toward God's appointed destination is going to take you. Now, let me just read one last passage this morning and we'll leave our study here. This is from a very familiar portion of Scripture all, all the way back in the Old Testament book of Psalms. And I want to read from Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm. And I'm going to focus just on one particular portion. So I'll read the verses leading up to it, but not the verses after it. I know you're well familiar with them. I'm going to be focused in verse 3, but let me read the first three verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores 
my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So verse 3 is my focus. He restores my soul. The word restore implies or describes to turn back something, to turn it back. He turns back my soul. What does he turn your soul back to? He turns it back to what we would call like, uh, I know uh, Karen does uh, furniture restoration. So in furniture restoration, you're taking old beat up furniture and you are restoring it to its original condition. So does this imply that what God is doing with you is he's restoring you to what you once were? No, No, not at all. But he is restoring you to what you once should have been. He's restoring you to the original planned and purposed condition of what it means to be a true woman of God in this world. Not what you ever experienced yet, but what he intended you to always experience and what you can experience if you follow him on the pathway that he's leading you, which is a pathway of sanctification, a step-by-step progression toward being conformed to the image of Christ, which is why the phrase, he restores my soul, is immediately followed by this phrase, he leads me in paths of righteousness. He's the leader in this pathway of sanctification. You're following his footsteps. You're following the, the, the pathway he's marked out for you. And that pathway always leads to the destination of where you always belonged. So I would just say as we end, um, embrace the real, lifelong, eternity lasting change that's happened to you when God introduced regenerating new life into you where there was only spiritual death before. But then commit to the process that follows immediately, the sanctification process. He's changed you so that he can change you, is basically what I'm saying. And you're in the process of the secondary and ongoing change that will continue to change your life for the rest of your life and for all of eternity to come. And understand how critically important, therefore, it is to to realize that you've been redeemed as God's image bearer. You've been redeemed as a dominion taker. You've been redeemed as a companion to your appointed husband and as a true helper to him. And in all of that, uh, God is ultimately pleased and you are ultimately blessed. All right, God bless you women this morning.